0: Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. JP Morgan Chase Bank NA member FDIC. Copyright 2024 JP Morgan Chase and Company.
1: The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with Location Telematics.
0: Pushkin. This
2: is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by screenwriter and labor activist, Alex O'Keefe. As you've probably seen in the news, the Writers Guild of America, which represents writers in film, television, and radio, went on strike against the producers back in May. Since then, O'Keefe has emerged as a leading voice in this fight against the studios, or more specifically, the AMPTP, the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. Formerly a staff writer on the hit show The Bear, O'Keefe has been outspoken about the union's demands for increased wages, stronger protections against the development of artificial intelligence, and, most importantly, residuals, which have all but vanished in this era of streaming. But this isn't just a Hollywood story. Since the pandemic began back in 2020, the U.S. has seen an uptick in union activity, The National Labor Relations Board saw 2,510 union representations petitions filed in fiscal year 2022, a 53% increase over the previous year. That includes more than 250 Starbucks stores that have voted to unionize, along with workers at Amazon warehouses and Trader Joe's. In fact, a recent Gallup poll reported that 71% of Americans currently approve of labor unions which is the highest rate recorded on this measure since 1965. And yet, despite this resurgence, we're far from the heyday of organizing. NPR reports that only 1 in 10 American workers are now in a union, down from nearly 1 in 3 workers back in the 1950s. This striking disconnect between widespread public support and waning union jobs Feels fitting for 2023, which has been full of confusion and contradictions, especially in the film industry, which just had its fourth biggest opening weekend in its history with the releases of Barbie and Oppenheimer. As David Sims writes in The Atlantic, the two films are diametrically different, auteur driven works that doubled their individual expected grosses. And yet, with actor and writer strikes ongoing, Studios seem almost hell-bent on dashing any chance at real industry momentum. A crisis isn't just brewing, Sims writes. It's here. And so, here we are. Together, SAG and the WGA are at a real impasse at this moment, with little signs that the AMPTP are open to coming back to the negotiating table. But our guest today, Alex O'Keefe, believes he's uniquely qualified to help turn the tide. He was formerly a community organizer for Obama, a speechwriter for Senators Elizabeth Warren and Ed Markey, and a campaign director for the Green New Deal. He's also 29 years old. We discuss some of his origin story in this conversation, along with the finer points of the strike, the checkered history of union organizing in Hollywood, and a whole lot more. This is Alex O'Keefe,
3: Alex O'Keefe. Hey welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. How are you feeling? I'm feeling as good as you can when you're unemployed with no idea when you're going to make your next paycheck. So pretty good. The power and the energy in the picket line keeps me up. Were you on the picket line this morning? Not this morning. No, I was preparing for this. You were? Well, I was just, you know, shaving my face so I don't look like a haggard man crawling out of a strike depression. That's why I'm also wearing a hat. I couldn't go to the barber. So just a couple days outside the barber, I look like I just escaped a mental institution. All you're really escaping is the picket line right yeah. now.
2: Are you a morning picketer or are you an early afternoon Usually picketer?
3: early afternoon because in part, it's such a social engagement. It's not like being in a writer's room or being in a Hollywood space. There's no hierarchies on it, so anyone can talk to anybody. And I'm meeting so many people from multiple generations, but I can't take it out of you to talk about your career, your fears again and again and again, but also I find so much solidarity on the line. Well, let's talk about your career and fears. (laughs) Okay, let's do it. (laughs) That's what we're here for.
2: (laughs) Why don't we start at the beginning of this? Your union, the Writers Guild of America which has roughly 11,500 members, went on strike May 2nd over ongoing labor disputes with the AMPTP. That's the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. That alliance includes traditional studios like Paramount and Disney, networks like ABC and CBS, streaming services like Netflix and Apple, Yeah. So for those unfamiliar, what are the most pressing demands your union has been making that have so far not been agreed to by the producers.
3: Well, I think you see the same thing across the entire economy. You know, they call Hollywood the dream factory, and like any factory, there's an assembly line. And to make more money, the assembly line has to go faster and faster and faster while the workers have less input in how the factory is run and overlords watch us all and just kind of dictate without any democratic engagement. That's the overall thing. The technology has advanced so rapidly since the last strike 15 years ago when I was much younger.
2: I think you just started high school. At that yeah, point. I think
3: I was in high school. So I was just like, where's my SNL? I had no idea why they were on strike. But streaming has come and it's given everyone the ability to watch anything at any point in time and repeat it no matter what. Now, it used to be before streaming that if your episode of television was repeated you would get a percentage and a share in the success of your show. So if you wrote for Everybody Loves Raymond, you know, you could build a family off the success of your show. So you put some risk- Through reruns. Through reruns. And now the reruns are, are unlimited. Because the technology has progressed faster than our contract has or our labor power has, we've really been left out totally of the success and the boom of streaming. So now if you make a streaming show, like I did with the bear on FX, FX on Hulu, You don't really see a real share in the success of a breakout hit like The Bear. Writers on Abbott Elementary, which is a network show on ABC, but reruns on Hulu, are getting just cents on the dollar for the success of their show. Now we also are looking at this new doom of technology, AI, artificial intelligence. In this ever-present effort to speed up efficiencies, these tech companies are not really movie companies anymore. They don't really care about making movies, they care about efficiencies, they are trying to replace human beings with machines. Mm-hmm. So they're trying to replace writers with machines, they're trying to replace actors with machines, and because they already own the copyright of all of our work, which was a concession made in a labor fight before I was born, they own the copyright of every script that's ever been produced, pretty much. They can feed those scripts into a ChatGPT-like artificial intelligence device and start producing new episodes of friends without even using the original writers. That's a big fear. And while we don't think that machines can replace the soulful art that we create, we also know that the execs don't really care about making soulful art. They care about making content as fast as possible that satisfies certain demographics at certain points of time, hit certain beats for international audiences, and can be fed into an algorithm to produce more content like that. You might like this if you like that. So because tech has taken over Hollywood, workers are rushing to catch up. And our only power really is our labor movement.
2: You said the technology has outpaced your current contract. Yeah. What are you trying to specifically negotiate in this new contract that would keep you level with the advancements in technology?
3: A big thing is residuals. Residuals is sharing the success of your work. So we want to have residuals that are comparative to network residuals, the residuals that were expected and part of the standard for decades in this business. So we want to increase the amount that we get from the reruns and the unlimited play of our shows and movies. We want to make it so AI can never be credited for writing a script. It could be used as a tool possibly, but we will not allow it to replace us. Those are the big ones, but it goes much deeper. One of the big issues is a mini room. You saw this with Elon Musk, let's downsize Twitter just keep like 20% of the workforce and they're gonna work all day and all night to replace the labor power of a larger workforce that was just downsized.
2: Yeah but they have that new logo.
3: You see what happens when billionaires start meddling in business they do not understand. They have no creative instincts whatsoever. I and love t- that
2: that was their big oh my new god feature. Yeah. Is replacing The one
3: nice part of Twitter. (laughs) The one friendly part that no one had an issue with the bird. Which was that little blue bird. Yeah. With a giant dystopian X (laughs) that looks like it's just from a kid's TV show of an evil corporation. (laughs) They've become a satire of themselves and they bring the same logic or lack thereof to Hollywood. So they have downsized Hollywood. I mean, they've laid off so many diversity, equity and inclusion chiefs and departments across their business. But. One of the biggest issues that we've seen, and it's affected my career, is the rise of mini rooms. So basically, before a show gets greenlit, they will bring writers together in a room to write the entire season of TV before it even gets out. Even The Bear was originally a mini room. These mini rooms are usually underfunded, and we work very hard, and you get cut out of the process immediately once it's over. So writers are not being brought to set. And young writers are not getting that opportunity for mentorship and education to one day become showrunners. So that means,
2: in your case, yeah, you worked on the first season of The Bear, you write on the show via Zoom during the pandemic for nine weeks. Yeah, For those nine weeks, you were paid $43,000. That sounds like a lot for a little more than two months of work. And yet you've said that figure is deeply misleading. Yeah, How so?
3: Well, listen, when... I got that job. It was a lifesaver to have any kind of job. And then all of a sudden, an FX show wants to employ me. Can you start tomorrow? My manager called me. He said they can offer $46,000. The room got cut early, like I said. So it was less than $46,000. And when he told me that amount of money, my eyes started vibrating. I was like, oh my God, I've never heard of making that kind of money. And then, of course, you multiply it. Okay, that's nine weeks. You multiply that. 52 weeks in a year, oh my God, I'll be rich. But of course, that money's not all yours, as my manager quickly explained to me. Your manager and your agent, your representatives will get 20%, maybe more. Your union will get 1.5%, maybe more. I was working in New York. I had to pay New York state taxes. By the end, you barely make much money at all. But it's supposed to be this kind of probationary role as staff writer. You get your start, you don't get much money, but you get paid basically like an intern. And of course, if you've made that kind of money the whole year, it wouldn't really be a problem. But with a lot of staff writers, you're held in exclusive contracts in case, oh, we want to write a second season while we're filming the first season. So you cannot always go on and work on something else. And getting that second gig is always the biggest hurdle. Mm. So, yeah, if you could get paid or be paid on retainer all year for being a staff writer or any kind of work, it'd be good money. But unfortunately, that's not how the business works. It's There's a lot of ups and downs. And that's why we have the residual model for writers of big shows to be able to continue living in between seasons. You would get a percentage of the success that would hold you over. It wouldn't be, you know, hundreds. Some people would be hundreds of thousands of dollars, but it would at least be enough to continue living between seasons.
2: Towards the end of your time on the show, you received a phone call from an executive producer on The Bear. Who said to you, I'm so sorry, this is your first writer's room experience, but it's not usually like this. She's suggesting that your experience was atypical. How does your time on The Bear differ from what she's suggesting is the typical writer's room experience?
3: Well, I think there's positives and negatives. My showrunners on The Bear were masters of the craft. So it's very atypical to work on a show that's as high quality, fast paced, stressful and deep as The Bear. And it's traumatic. It's triggering. It pulls things out of you. What do you mean by that? The whole time I was working on The Bear, I was really suffering. Um, It felt often like I was just a new employee at the restaurant, the original beef. I was thrown an apron and said, start cooking. But the thing that my showrunner was trying to explain to me is that you get brought into a room, but you're not invested in you can't come to set, you can't even get flown to the writer's room, that's really abnormal because she was trained in the kinds of rooms where there's a showrunner that is expected to pass the torch on to the next generation to teach them how to be showrunners. But it's very hard to do that when all we can do is Zoom. But I told her, listen, I'm just happy to be here. I mean, this is amazing. I wish I was getting paid more. I wish this, or wish that, but I'm extremely grateful. This is not a personal tragedy my first season on The Bear. It represents what young writers are up against. Just like with journalism, our career is going extinct just as we're breaking through. So it's very difficult to get a foothold to establish your voice when all the structures around you are burning down.
2: Well, it's funny, as you're saying that, you're in some ways echoing the sentiments of CEO Bob Iger. Yeah. Who, when asked about the strike, had this to say.
4: Well, I think it's very disturbing to me. I, you know, we've talked about uh, disruptive forces on this business and all the challenges that we're facing and the recovery from COVID, which is ongoing. It's not completely back. This is the worst time in the world to add to that disruption. Uh, I understand uh, any any labor organizations. Desire to um, work on the behalf behalf of its members to get you know the most compensation to be compensated fairly based on the value that they deliver. We managed as an industry to negotiate a very good deal with the Directors Guild that reflects the value that the directors contribute to this great business. We wanted to do the same thing with the writers, and we'd like to do the same thing with the actors. There's a level of expectation that they have that is just not realistic, and they are adding to a set of challenges that this business is already facing that is, quite frankly, very disruptive So they're not being realistic? Uh, no, they're not.
2: <laughs> so the first part of that statement is that there are disruptive forces in the industry. Yeah. The same forces you just alluded to. You both are on the same page that this is a precarious moment yeah. to be making work in Hollywood. It's just the second half of what he says that seems to be very far away from where the union is coming from.
3: Well, you also can hear Tweedledee of birds in the background. If you are watching the clip, he's sitting in designer clothes at a palatial estate called a billionaire camp, summer camp for billionaires in Sun Valley. If you just zoom out a little bit, you would see private jets. So he's the one who's living in La La Land. He's so inoculated from the pain that his success and his personal wealth brings everyone that works for him. I respect what Bob Iger has built with Disney. I mean, it's pretty hard to deny that they have built an institution, an empire. I'm from Orlando, Florida. So I really know the vice grip that Disney has on IP and on the minds of so many people. But to call us unrealistic when, I was working for Bob Iger, you know, because the bear is owned by FX, which is owned by Disney. I was working for him, making him lots of money. And while I was working on the bear, I was making below the poverty line. We are only on strike because we've lived these harsh realities for years. Many of us come from the working class or from poverty. I believe that what we're asking for is very realistic. We're asking for nothing Even visionary, we're asking for the same standards given to writers of the past generation to be given to new writers. And that's too much for these people, even though he's making half a billion dollars every five years.
2: In fact, the research supports what you're saying. Because if we go back to the last time both the writers and the actors struck at the same time, it was 1960. Yeah, Obviously, as people know, the actors joined the fight earlier this month. But much of the industry has changed in the 63 years since that dual strike. And yet, not a whole lot on the surface is very different. Here is a report from the Associated Press in 1960. This is Bob Thomas. Having survived a perilous movie decade, the movie industry now faces 1960 with the threat of a strike that could shutter the studios. The prize... The money to be earned from release of post-1948 movies to television. Yeah. So far, the two talent guilds are remaining firm. They feel they deserve a share of the proceeds from the feature they helped create. <laughs> Sounding familiar, isn't it? Yeah. The studios are equally firm. Spiro Scoris, president of the 20th Century Fox organization, last week predicted a battle to the death <laughs> if the writers and actors continue their demands. We need this money, he said. Most film nowadays lose money. The studios must get revenue wherever they can. If the guilds don't back down, the studios would be closed for a reassessment and readjustment. You could effectively
3: swap the names of Bob and Spiros. And then what happened after that? Did all the studios close down because they paid the writers and actors? The studios did not close down.
2: I can tell you what happens after, but we'll get to that later. If their side of the negotiating table the producer side, if it sounds effectively the same 63 years later, what's different on the union side that makes you think this is a fight that you can win, that previous generations have not been
3: able to win? Yeah. It's funny, that strike was actually led by Ronald Reagan, who was an actor who later became president and became a president who broke the labor movement by breaking the air traffic controllers strike during his presidency. There used to be a culture in America of strike-ready organizations, strike-ready labor unions. And this threat of a strike allowed us to win larger contracts, not just in Hollywood, but across the entire labor force. After Ronald Reagan's presidency, strikes became very unpopular and it kind of forfeited our biggest weapon against the 1% which is our ability to withhold labor. Now, what is different about then and now is this cataclysmic trauma that every living being on the entire earth has lived through, which is the pandemic of COVID-19. I don't have to tell you that the pandemic forced pretty much every single human being to rethink our values, to understand our own mortality, to take our needs more seriously, And during the pandemic, that's when we started seeing an upsurge of a new labor movement. There was a largest strike wave since the Great Depression during the pandemic because workers had to fight to win their PPE. At the same time, Hollywood kept churning out content and streaming got more profitable than ever because everyone was home watching the same television. So Hollywood and the entertainment industry became critical infrastructure to maintain America during this breaking point. If we didn't have TV and movies satisfying us at that time, I don't know what would have happened to America.
2: I thank Columbo every day.
3: <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, that's all we had. And I think that's the same thing with UPS workers, Amazon workers. These essential workers kept society running. The writer's strike and the actor's strike is the tip of the spear of a larger labor movement that's more powerful than it's been since the New Deal era. Across Los Angeles, workers are on strike. Unite here, the hotel workers are on strike. We got Medieval Times workers on strike. We have strippers on strike. I don't have that t-shirt. <laughs> yeah, you, it's a great t-shirt. Yeah. You gotta get the t-shirt. I was hoping t-shirt. you bring one. I'll get you one if you want it. But we are seeing a labor movement that is more powerful than probably any other movement. And the last couple of years, and I've been a movement leader in the last decade, but what's different about this movement is that there's a true, literal threat to power. It's not just we're picking up protest signs and we're picketing in front of a politician hoping the politician will pass a law. This is economic power that we're welding. The writers create millions of dollars for the Los Angeles economy, for the New York economy, for the U.S. economy, for the global economy. Mm-hmm. Culture's critical infrastructure and one of America's greatest exports. If you remove that, it does start to wreak havoc across many industries. It's not a lot of money what the writers and the actors are asking for. In the grand scheme of things, it's one Hollywood blockbuster worth of money. But what they worry about is all the collateral costs. If they pay the writers, they have to pay their actors. If they pay the actors, they have to pay the directors. If they pay the directors, they have to pay the crew, the Teamsters. And if they pay all of us who are at the heart of a culture industry, who have a huge megaphone, that the rest of the world can hear, they might have to start paying workers across the entire world what they're due.
2: I I wanna focus on Hollywood for a second. These companies are obviously bigger than ever before. Yeah. They're buying each other up, turning into these monopolies and these conglomerates. But Rich Greenfield over at CNBC reported that Netflix made $6.5 billion last year, excluding interest, taxes, and non-cash charges while the newer services at disney, paramount and nbc universal lost more than 8 billion these partners in the amptp coalition it's been reported over and over again that they actually have less to do with how each make their money than ever yeah from a negotiating perspective would the guild consider making individual deals with someone like a sony and start breaking apart what is An increasingly weakened coalition
3: well netflix has only been part of since 2021 since 2021 so it's a new partner and it's really like this suicide pact that netflix has signed with the rest of the streamers because netflix is their entire business model is about becoming the monopoly of all entertainment so netflix has dragged many of these historic hollywood streamers and studios into a losing battle that they cannot win. Netflix has already established itself in global territories. Netflix is a tech company first, so their algorithm is going to be so much more advanced than what Peacock can do. So they are burning down the rest of the economy and largely using this strike in their favor to disrupt other competitors. Now, I can't speak on behalf of WGA whether we would break up the AMPTP, but I can say personally, I think that's a great idea. I think that these companies have very, very different business models, and they cannot coexist. And they have to realize that in capitalism, Netflix is incentivized to destroy them and destroy all of their jobs and eat it all up. What we've seen recently is SAG-AFTRA has made interim agreements with A24 and independent studios that pay what SAG-AFTRA is asking of these big studios I think we could see more and more of that. WGA has not given any such interim agreements. But what we could see next year is a summer of independent movies because the only things being produced right now are independent movies. As much as we can break up the monopolies, it'll be better for all entertainment. That's what happened after 1960, after the last dual strike. There was a huge Supreme Court case, the United States versus Paramount, that broke up the big studios and that gave space for the American new wave of Easy Rider or Bonnie and Clyde of Scorsese and Lucas. It gave space for this new wave of independent auteurs that pushed the limits of what film could be. So you're in favor of
2: the actors offering interim agreements with these companies?
3: I'm not part of SAG-AFTRA, so I try not to criticize the moves of a guild that I don't fully understand.
2: Right, but there's two unions that yeah. are working to create power and solidarity. Yeah. Do you think that in any way undercuts your value in, at the negotiating table?
3: It could possibly undercut the value at the negotiating table. It's a gambit. So speaking as a consumer of the art, I think it's great. Speaking as a worker on strike, I want a total strike. I want everyone to be in the same boat because that creates solidarity.
2: This disagreement and approach, again, has roots in 1960. Here's a report in Variety.
3: Man, you do the research. (laughs) I love this. I love this. March
2: 3rd, 1960. The headline reads, actors, writers vary on indies. Hmm. Writers Guild is refusing to sign contracts with any indie releasing through a major studio, regardless of whether the studio has or has not ownership or profit participation in the picture involved. The Actors Guild, on the other hand, has not set such a hard and fast policy and may in some cases sign an indie where a major release is involved. The difference in approach is primarily philosophical, Variety writes. Writers Guild feels that allowing major releases, regardless of the financial participation, weakens their strike effort. As long as majors are able to furnish pictures to theaters, they're continuing in business and are not being sufficiently disabled by the strike, the Guild feels. Mm. Actors, on the other hand, are working from a strategic point of view and are willing to make such deals for the sake of their psychological effect, Mm. as well as the fact that in some cases, under discussion... The independent companies involved are owned all or in part by their own members. Yeah. This was in 1960, 63 years later. I see no difference. Yeah. I guess I'm proposing this to you as how do you hold power when parts of different unions are temporarily forfeiting it to these companies?
3: It's a really interesting question about whether or not the interim agreements are a good idea. Ultimately, in a union, our priority is not creating a new independent scene, right? Our priority is making sure our workers get paid as much as possible and what they are valued and get the benefits that we deserve. SAG-AFTRA said, you know, some of their members might have production companies. Some of their members might have pre-existing deals. I think that the only power we have in this world truly and the greatest psychological power, if that's what we're talking about, is the power to withhold our labor and remind our bosses who actually creates all the value. Mm -hmm. So recently, Netflix had an earnings report that said, hey, because we've laid off so many people and we've cut down on labor costs because we're not paying anyone to make new content, we have billions of dollars in free cash flow. There was also the password crackdown. Password crackdown, and they raised rates on everybody. They said, hey, we're making more money than ever. Wall Street did not reward them. Because for one, there's still this idea that there is a a limit to how much they can expand their subscriber growth. And there's this idea that if you cut off the pipeline of new production, that will slowly destroy your supply chain. And with writing especially, that disruption is delayed, but it's still going to be there. So if I was running all the unions, I would say everyone's on strike and I would certainly not make these interim agreements so early on in the strike. But I understand sag is its own guild with its own independent incentives. And we cannot expect to have this lockstep solidarity. This level of solidarity between the guilds is relatively new in Hollywood. What I would like to see beyond this contract fight is that we don't just mobilize every three years for contract fights, but we build cross union solidarity and working groups so we can be more in touch with what effective strategies are. Because I would say probably most people in sag don't even know that in 1960, this same strategy was used. But I would say in retrospect, look at what came out of that strike. That strike is known for creating the profit-sharing model, which in most unions and most workforces, the idea of sharing in the profit of your work is beyond even debate, you get what you get when you work that job and whether or not your product sells well or not, you usually don't get a percentage of it. We got pension and healthcare from that and that strike is known for creating and creating space for the new independent movement that has allowed our art form to evolve. So, you know, I've worked in politics and movement, everyone wants a win or lose, you know, was this good or bad? And often the, the, the answer is in between. Maybe it was right for the Writers Guild to not do those interim agreements because the nature of our work is different. It's easier to stockpile our scripts. So if we made interim agreements, they could just have more scripts to stockpile so they could extend the strike. While actors, their labor is more direct. They have to be in front of the camera so you cannot stockpile performances. Now, of course... SAG-AFTRA is fighting right now the AI regulation to make sure that these companies are unable to stockpile performances because that's what they want. They want to be able to basically scan every actor and be able to reuse them and reuse their likeness for whatever performance or create new performances. So all of these different labor forces have their own needs and their own leverage points. If SAG-AFTRA believes that's a leverage point, I'm excited to see the independent cinema they produce. But I hope that it does not diminish the leverage for me to get a living wage for my work.
2: I'm excited to watch it too. We'll be right back with screenwriter and activist Alex O'Keefe.
0: Chase Mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. JP Morgan Chase Bank,
3: NA, member FDIC.
0: The most innovative companies are going further with T Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity,
4: giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobilecom slash now. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year the army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How is the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to the assignment with Audi Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Holding the line is hard. Yeah. The history of labor unions in America has bored that out over and over and over again. But, you know, on the subject of solidarity, I want to understand where that all comes from for you, because you're born in the early 90s, mm-hmm. come of age in the early 2000s, raised by a single mother who you've said instilled a discipline of solidarity. I know you're on strike. If you were to write the description of the scene that was your upbringing, what would those first few sentences sound like?
3: You know, I've seen a lot of hard times and I've walked through the valley. Um, my mom worked so many different jobs at hotels and serving just like the bear. would watch friends die at the job, you know, heart attacks because they were so overworked and I've seen so much pain that's completely unnecessary. And an image comes to me every time I think about this, of walking around my neighborhood in Gotha, Florida, and there'd be this one car that I would always stop, and I'd be so hurt and sad. And, you know, I was impoverished, and I knew that there was these huge structures, and now there was a system that was holding me in this place there were these cops that would patrol my neighborhood that would pick me up for no reason. There was, you know, Confederate flag-toting dudes who would start fights, and there was all these structures, this chaos of Florida that I lived through. And when I would look at that face of that poor, young, black boy, you know, it's so cliche if you are not actively living that life, but I would try to re- memorize that face because I told myself, this is not going to be in vain. I'm going to get out of this. But when I get out of this, I don't want to forget that so many people are always going to be stuck in that reality, unless I change that reality.
2: You know, your brother Ben, yeah, once wrote that we had a lot of struggles growing up. And we've succeeded in spite of so many obstacles that stood in our way. What specifically were those
3: obstacles for you. Um, my father was an alcoholic who, you know, like so many black men got caught up in stuff like crack and caught up in the legal system and there was no security. It was always chaos. And in that chaos, you learn how to survive. You learn how to persevere. You learn how to be creative but there was never any kind of guiding light besides my mother. She always just taught me that you have to believe in people. You have to believe in the humanity and in the light and the soul that each person holds and try to fight for people. And my mom's the type of person that would, you know, come home, she'd be fired from a job because she stood up for her coworkers, and there was no union, but it was the principle of the matter. I try not to get caught up in the the whole tragic backstory, (laughs) but it was hard. It was really hard to live in a world where there was no Obama at that point. There was no woke media that people are fighting against now. It was a white world that I was living in. It was a rich man's world that I was living in. And there were these forces changing my life that I had no control over. There were hurricanes hitting Florida every year that would destroy the roof of our house and there would be a hole in the ceiling. And every year that hole would get bigger with every hurricane. And first it would be a drip, drip, drip. And then I'd come home from school some days and the whole house would be flooded because we couldn't afford to fix that hole. You know, my mom would teach us just to ignore the hole, just to keep living life because we could not change that. But I've always been somebody that I cannot look away from this hole that is broken open in our society, a hole that so many people fall into. And it's given me empathy because no matter what success I get, I never see myself as that person. You know, when I was at the Bear premiere, I was wearing my Thames and a hoodie and sweatpants, which was probably a bad idea because everyone else was in gowns and suits and everything because I just saw myself as that same country bumpkin, barefoot, walking around Florida. I never thought that I would be here at all, but this is a good way for me to break in. I'm breaking in by speaking about the power of workers, speaking from my heart about what I really care about. This is what she raised me to do. She raised me to be a champion for other people, and she's proud of me, so... You know, you win awards, all that sort of thing. It doesn't matter half as much as your mother's love.
2: You know, a few minutes ago, you said, I don't like to get caught up in the darker elements of my upbringing. And it was the first time in our hour together that you seemed to be a little bit at a loss for words. And you were looking off, seemingly thinking about something that was some image that I think came to mind. And I wondered what exactly that was. Man, is getting deep. <laughs> I mean, if I'm wrong, you can say I'm no, wrong. No,
3: you're definitely not wrong. I think it's always easier for me to talk about and fight for others than to fight for myself and to hold the hurt of others than to hold my own hurt. But there was a lot of mental health issues growing up with my mom. And it's so hard being a single mother in the South and being poor. And I look back and, you know, some years she'd make $14,000 a year. I'm here complaining I'm making, you know, $43,000 for a couple weeks of work. And I understand how many people would hear that and say, oh my God, that 43,000, like I said, um, there were no unions in Florida. So we just really suffered. And sometimes it would really break my, my mom and she would turn into a different person. And It's so hard to see the people you love um, be poisoned by the fear and the stress of American life. And there would be times that she would just for days be caught in an episode of severe mental health issues. I mean, I really try not to hold on to spite. I was really poor before this strike. And my friend was driving me home. I was teaching some kids out in Watts, California. My friend was driving me home. He was like, aren't you pissed that, like, you worked all this this way to get into Hollywood and, like, you don't even get a percentage of your success and, you know, you're expected to buy this suit and go to the award show and all this sort of thing. And I said, you know, not really, like... I guess like I've seen so much darkness and I felt like Icarus during my first year in Hollywood and I I wasn't really prepared for it. I really wasn't prepared to work on the bear. I wasn't ready for the success I got and it kind of destroyed me. It destroyed my mental health. How so? I found myself just fraying at the edges and, you know, I, I wasn't capable of going on. The bear got caught up for a second season and I just could not do that you know i just couldn't what do you mean it felt like psychosis that all of a sudden um you know someone told me that writing is like managed schizophrenia (laughs) you know you hear these characters carmy's talking to sydney all this sort of thing it's living in your head the stress of the kitchen of the bear was kind of in my head and i definitely needed a pause from it and I felt like I've flown so high only, like Icarus, only to fall back to Earth. But my friend told me, you know, what if you could write a new story that Icarus realizes he didn't need the wings and that he could walk on his own two feet with his people? And I think that's what I'm doing right now. You know, I would have loved to keep working on the bear. I worked on another project instead. I went slower and maybe it was ultimately a bad idea. The bear season two is so amazing. I love that team so much, but for me, it just was not anything that was recognizable to the life that I've lived for most of my life. And now I'm walking with the people of America, with the workers of America, and I'm marching, and this, now I'm doing an interview about it. So it seems like the right path, even though it's not necessarily the straight path up.
2: You know, I hear you, Alex, I do. But I almost wanna push back on your behalf for a second because the person you're describing, it may be the person you see in the mirror when you wake up, but the person I've researched is very different from the young teenager that made endless YouTube videos with his friends, that harassed his fellow classmates to like their Facebook posts, You did a lot of research, (laughs) damn. I've watched about 10 of them. (laughs) I should get residuals for having to watch that. Some of them were really terrible. (laughs) All of them were filled with joy and humor and heart and all the things that make up any good artist. That teenager then took his video editing abilities and parlayed it into political work, first for Senator Warren, then for Ed Markey, That's true. There's a little bit of a discrepancy between the person you've been Mm -hmm. demonstrated through actions and the person you feel you are in this conversation with me. Yeah. Yeah. How do you make sense of that gap?
3: I have a hard time making sense of it. Um, Yeah, with Warren, I, (laughs) you know, I've never talked about this stuff publicly. So it's kind of, it's kind of interesting to talk about some processing in real time. Um, since I was a kid, I knew that there were like two ways to get out of poverty. One was like becoming a basketball star, and I really suck at basketball, I can't dribble for shit.
2: I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> you, you won't be invited to our
3: basketball Oh game my play, god, then. it would have been, I you know, I'm, I was never trying to be MJ, but maybe the guy on the end of the bench who does dances every time someone makes a three pointer, I could get that kind of role for a couple million bucks a year. You know those players are also good too, right? Yeah, they're good too. <laughs> they're just not the best. Um, You know, if you look at a resume, you only see success. But to get to those points, you have to take such great risk and leap into the unknown and fall, fall a very long time. Which you have. Which I have. But then there's been these moments that I've climbed up to prominence and I've met with Warren and she liked my th- stuff and made a speech for her, went viral and built movements. You know, I built the Green New Deal movement with the Sunrise movement. I can't explain it. I just see myself as somebody who is in touch with my own soul, that understands that this body is just a vessel for a limited time on Earth, and I try to stay connected to something maybe cosmic, some voice that tells me where to go. I don't know how I'm here in front of you, how this kid who walked barefoot is now, has marched into the nation's capital and given words to the senators, has put words into the mouths of characters who made hit TV shows and is now a leader for this Hollywood labor movement. I don't understand any of it. <laughs> I really, it doesn't make any sense to me. I just know I'm here. I just try to focus. I'm here. I'm present. I'm I'm looking at you. You're another human being. Your life is just as complex as mine. And if I get too caught up in how I'm here, or why I'm doing this, I think it kind of creates a certain level of narcissism. And I think my gift is to listen to people far more than I'm doing right now because it's an interview, but I'm an organizer. I've gone around this country and I've heard people share their heart stories, stories from their soul, share who they really are, what they really care about, what future they want to see. And if you've heard that enough, you are not just you. You're so many people that you're holding, that you're carrying that you're speaking for, and that's all I am. I'm Alex O'Keefe, that's my name, but beyond that, I'm all the love and the belief and the faith and the militant optimism that I've seen in this world.
2: Now that you've made it through all that you've described, and you're here in this present moment where there is a historic strike, and there is a potential for a new kind of industry you have decided to run for a seat on the WGA West board, pledging that as a leader of this story union, you write, I will meet you in the valley. I will risk my career for you. I will say things no one in Hollywood is allowed to say. Well, the, um, the floor is yours if you want to deliver your stump speech.
3: <laughs> the question coming out of this strike is how do we turn this moment into a movement and i think if you look at my history i've been able to do that somehow some way every single time it's very abnormal for someone of my relatively low rank in hollywood a staff writer of one season of a television show to run for any position of leadership and i would have not planned to run for such a position if it wasn't for every time me every time i go on the picket line people pushed me to There's something they see in me, which I think is courage. And courage is usually in short supply in this business. Everyone runs scared. I uh, won the W.J. West Award. I had no money, negative bank account. But what was really special is I got to meet my screenwriting hero, Charlie Kaufman, who wrote Eternal Sunshine, The Spotless Mind. He was winning the Lifetime Achievement Award in the Guild. And he gave this really rousing speech, a manifesto, really,
2: and I think uh, a speech so good that perhaps we should take a listen to it. Wow, you
3: have this pulled out.
0: <laughs> there it is. 20 years ago, I'm in the back of an auditorium watching a seminar called How to Pitch. One by one, supplicants approach a microphone at the foot of the stage on which sits a panel of experts, producers, executives, et no writers. The first student of the pitch speaks voice shaking. We open on a barge in the middle of, stop, you've lost me already. <laughs> Student of the pitch two, voice shaking. Uh, young man falls from the sky into, no, no, Jesus, come on. And so it goes. These nervous young people step up to be shot down. Sadistic, I think, payback for the way the panelists were once treated, I think. Garbage, I think. Training, I think. We writers are trained by the business. We are trained to believe what we do is secondary to what they do. We are trained to do the bidding of people who are motivated not by curiosity, but by protecting their jobs. And we lose sight of what our work is. It is not to contribute to their fortunes or our own. It is not to please them or critics or even the audiences who have also been trained. Our work is to reflect the world, say what is true in the face of so much lying. The world is beautiful. The world is impossibly complicated. And we have the opportunity to explore that. If we give that up for the carrot, then we might as well be the executives because we have become their minions. I have dropped the ball, wasted years seeking the approval of people with money. Don't get trapped in their world of box office numbers. You don't work for them. You don't work for the world of box office numbers. You work for the world. Don't worry about how to pitch, don't pitch. Be nervous, be vulnerable. Just make your story honest and tell it. They've tricked us into thinking we can't do it without them, but the truth is they cannot do anything of value without us. Thank you for this award. I'm so grateful for the opportunity it's afforded me to reflect on what it is that's important to me about the work that we do. Thank you.
3: Yeah. Our work is to reflect the world, say what is true in the face of so much lying. And I was crying listening to that speech. I was at my lowest. I looked better than I've ever looked before. I looked like a million bucks. I knew I had to look like a million bucks to say I deserve to be here.
2: You were crying now watching it.
3: Yeah, I had to. It brings up a lot. Too. I think
2: you were holding it back because I was in the room. <laughs>
3: yeah, you know, trying, to, trying to keep it professional, but it means crying is not unprofessional you're right you're right and that's the culture i want to change in hollywood but i became a master of political optics for many politicians and movements and when you become a master at optics you see how much is false about our world about the people who run our world how much is just pure pr and i've become so sickened by the lying i feel like everyone's lying to each other and to ourselves lying about the pain that we're holding I cannot operate in a world like that. I have to operate in truth. I, after the award show, there was Charlie Kaufman and Jordan Peele and the Daniels, they were all talking to each other. And I was just standing a couple steps away looking at probably if you ask me, my, my heroes in film working right now, would be it'd be those cats. And the Daniels came up to me and congratulated me. And then I got the time to speak to Charlie Kaufman. I showed him the award and I said, you know, Eternal Sunshine, that was the first screenplay I ever read. And, you know, he was a classic nervous writer, but what he told me, the only advice he gave me is just tell the truth. He looked in my eyes, he could say, I can tell that you are a truthful person. He said, just don't lose that because I lost that for so many years and I thought it would bring me more success. And I think it would have had just as many failures if I just stay true to who I was and what I cared about. And that was really the moment I decided that I'm going to speak out for this strike because everyone at that award show, it was a WGA award show, was talking about, do you think we're going to go on strike? Do you think we're going to go on strike? That was the moment that I said, you know, let me try to have a different kind of career. And I just tell the truth about this industry that produces all culture. I say, who's actually running it? I organized my fellow workers to reshape it. And (laughs) most people believed I was completely delusional saying this. I know my manager thought I had gone off the deep end (laughs) of revolution in Hollywood. And now we are in week 12 of this strike. And I've heard workers from across the world reach out to me. Ask me, how are you doing this? How can I unionize my workplace? To me, maybe I won't ever work in Hollywood again. But what's important to me is that when I had the power, when I had that torch, when I had that megaphone, I did something that other people wouldn't do. And I'm really trying to change the structures of Hollywood. I want to smash the monopolies that rule Hollywood. Six corporations own 90% of the media. And what do they do with that power? they replicate their own power. They keep people in the 1% powerful and they keep us all on the 99% struggling in poverty. And I think artists have a very special, important responsibility for that struggle. Pretty good speech. (laughs) I wasn't even really trying to give a speech, you know.
2: As we go, you've alluded to these um, six corporations that own 90% of the media. In that speech we just heard, kaufman makes explicit reference to them you've described the fighter that you are but i want to sit with the fight itself because this industry is increasingly run by tech titans thinking about apple amazon netflix that you have said have very little interest in the art form in private conversations i've had with members of sag and the wga there's an overwhelming sense that the people at the top of this industry, unlike in years past, unlike in 07, 08, unlike in 1960, that these people have little to no respect for the delicate artist ecosystem that they preside over. Essentially, these are tech people, not film people. How then do you begin negotiating with figureheads that are largely disinterested in the form itself? How do you come back to the negotiating table when the people on the other side of it are not even sure there should be a table yeah. that call, as Bob Iger has, film and television potentially not core to their company? Yeah. How do you bring them back and how do you get out of this?
3: They have utterly failed the PR war. I mean, we've destroyed them in the PR war. Investors actually came out and said that they kind of see all these CEOs as idiots They believe they're failing miserably and they're angry. That was in the Ankler. That was in the Ankler recently. And investors are siding with the unions, which is not usually the case, but they understand that this was seen as a white collar career, not a middle class career. And the more you degrade the workforce, the more you degrade your product. And I think that consciousness is just starting to awaken, but I'm not a WJ leader at this point. I'm not on the board of directors. I'm not in the negotiating committee. So I cannot say what is going to break them, but I do know what they fear the most. What they fear the most is a working class population that knows their power and is willing to shut down the economy until they get what they deserve. My goal is to unite the labor movement and make the Writers Guild the tip of the spear for the labor movement to mobilize the greatest storytellers. There's nothing radical about this contract. It's just trying to get basic compensation so people don't live below the poverty line while working on giant TV shows. Oftentimes in labor, you have to go through a period of strikes, which are very painful to go through, in order to establish a long period of labor peace. I believe we have to stay strike ready as a union. We have to build our capacity for strikes. We have to go on strike in collaboration with other unions across the country. That is what we have to move towards if we ever want to be able to stop this endless backslide into fascism and capitalist rule. If we want to have a democracy of people like you and I, workers, regular people, instead of a democracy of just 10 guys at the top, we have to democratize our workplaces. And it cannot stop with me getting a six-picture deal with Disney Plus at the end of this. It has to be every worker in America unified. Plainly,
2: do you think the WGA has ever won one of these deals?
3: <laughs> um, No, no. I, I think that 1960 was the most visionary contract win we ever got, but we've also never waged a strike in this media age, and I think that's what's very different. In past strikes, you would never hear from a writer like myself, a staff writer, sharing their story. But now we have the access to social media that we can build a narrative more powerful than anything that the multi-million dollar PR firms that I'm sure they're using can build. So we can wage a narrative war that can hopefully bring them back to the table. But this is a hard time. They've told us publicly that their strategy is to starve us out. Their strategy is to explicitly push this strike so long that writers like myself, precarious young writers, have to lose their homes, have to lose their apartments. The quote
2: was in Deadline from one studio executive, the end game is to allow things to drag out until union members start losing their apartments and losing their homes. Another insider called this approach a cruel but necessary evil.
3: Yeah, when they are admitting that they are evil, I mean, where do you go from there in a negotiation? The people who are running the largest corporations believe that their evil is necessary. Mm -hmm. We have to wage a revolution of values in this country and in every country to say that, no, evil is not necessary. We have to build a better future, a vision that makes sense to people, a vision that is accessible, a vision in which we all share the wealth that we create. It's not impossible. It is possible.
2: I see what you mean by uh, militant optimism. (laughs) I think you called it earlier. Yeah. To close, at the beginning of this talk, I uh, quoted from a 1960 report from the AP. And you asked me, uh, mostly as a joke, but you asked me, And what happened next? Did the studios actually close? What really happened next? And I told you that I would tell you what happened. And I will. The actors and the writers made serious concessions. The same was true in 2007, 2008. It's true in 2017. That's why there was no strike. Each time, it typically came back to an uptick in minimums, some extra money to pension plans, some improvement on residuals, Mild, mild protection against newfangled technologies. But in each instance, the unions did relent. And so I'm asking you, because you have seemed and sounded pretty intractable on your demands, do you really believe you're going to break the historical cycle?
3: I think that this is a new generation. There's a new wave in Hollywood. And this is a wave of change makers and cycle breakers like they've never seen before. This is a wave of young people who marched in 2020 against the state, against the police. And yeah, we didn't win then. If you look at the history of movements, then MLK was a failure. You know, he he was trying to build a poor people's campaign and he was killed before he could finish his vision. If you look at most movements in a small period of time, you would say, wow, There's never been success. You know, America was built by the 1% for the 1%. But this story is still unwritten. We do not know the future. This future is something that we always create. That's why I have militant optimism. Is it likely that we will win? Is it likely that we will get everything that we want? No, it's not likely. But it's also not likely that this kid from Florida who walked around barefoot would write for senators, build the Green New Deal movement, and send in front of you, Emmy-nominated, a WGA winner. So will we win? We have to. Will we win everything in this contract? Probably not. But this is the beginning of a movement, and we have never seen a Hollywood movement like the one that I am building, the one that I am building alongside my fellow workers in the WGA alongside actors, alongside truck drivers, alongside teachers and hospital workers. What I am trying to organize and mobilize my fellow writers to do is to imagine a better world, to write that better world, to put it into our art. And it is planting seeds in the minds of so many. And so whatever contract we get this year, that is not the end of this story. You know, I'm only 29 years old. (laughs) This is my second year in the business. My first year was the bear, my second year is a strike. Get ready for my third year, that's all I can tell you. I don't even know what's going to happen. If you truly believe in a better world, that better world can come. It's not inevitable, it takes labor. But we are the workers. The new world will be born from our bricks. We have the ability to build the world that we've always wanted to live in. It starts with the mind, it starts with the soul, it starts with the belief that something new is possible under this sun.
2: Well, then I think uh, it's true. You've certainly lived a life of making the impossible possible. And I hope that your new story that you're telling of a better world, of a more just world, I hope it's the one that wins out. And uh, I have to imagine if it's ever going to change, it's going to be because of people like you. So I thank you for that. Thank you. I thank you for the fight. Appreciate it. Alex O'Keefe, solidarity forever. I wish you luck. that's our show. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to leave us five stars on Spotify, Apple, wherever you do your listening. If you want to go above and beyond sharing the show on social media with a friend really is the best way for new listeners to find the podcast. I want to give a special thanks this week to the Academy Library and of course our guest Alex O'Keefe. To learn more about his work or how to support the WGA, We'll include resources in our show notes at talkeasypod.com. For more conversations like this one, I'd recommend Sarah Silverman, John Bernthal, Congressman Maxwell Frost, Sarah Nelson, Dolores Huerta, Ested Herndon, Gloria Steinem, Noam Chomsky, and Anita Hill. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you want to purchase one of our mugs, they come in cream or navy, or our vinyl record with the inimitable Fran Lebowitz. You can do so at TalkEasyPod.com slash shop. As always, Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janik Bravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Our research and production assistant is Paulina Suarez. Today's talk was edited by Caitlin Dryden and mixed by Andrew Vastola. Our assistant editors are Clarice Guevara and CJ Mitchell. Music by Dylan Peck. Illustrations by Christian Shenoy. Photographs today are by Julius Chu. Video and graphics are by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzek, Ian Jones, and Ethan Seneca. I'd also like to thank our team at Pushkin Industries, Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Schnars, Kerry Brody, David Glover, Heather Fain, Eric Sandler, Jordan McMillan, Isabella Navarez, Kira Posey, Tara Machado, Maya Koenig, Jason Gambrell, Justine Lang, Lietal Milan, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. We'll see you back here next Sunday with another episode. Until then, stay safe and so long.
1: Enter now at slash unconventional awards. See you there.
4: Smart journalism, fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.